Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is June 26th, and we have really one of my favorite episodes we've ever done um, today, I think. We have an interview, um, and I can't even believe we're saying this, we have an interview with Shea Serrano, a New York Times bestselling author, Shea Serrano of The Ringer, um, in advance of his uh, upcoming book, Basketball and Other Things. Um, so obviously we are um, pleased as punch about having him on the show this week. But we're before- pleased as punch. What did this? Did your <laughs> excitement about this episode turn you into like, like a, an old timey British lady? Yes, yes, it did. Um, <laughs> it's it's a problem, but that's what happens when um, exciting things happen. I turn into a British lady. So, um, but before we do that, how about um, how about the basic rundown, huh? Absolutely. So it is the end of June, which means it's time to look forward to our special episodes in July. Our query episode where we critique, you guessed it, queries by real writers um, will be July 13th. Our writing by reading episode will drop July 20th. Stay stay tuned online for kind of a update and a drop on what specifically we're going to be talking about that episode in a few weeks. And then our first pages episode, which is the same thing as the query show, except for first pages, will go live July 27th. So send us your suggestions for writing by reading, your queries, and your first pages to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I feel like now would be a good time to mention uh, that we're we're pretty far into this podcast. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening or if you're a new listener, um, we would really love your review. Yeah, um, iTunes. <laughs> I do love getting the iTunes reviews. Um, if you feel so inclined, if you listen to us and um, you enjoy us, please, um, you know, if you had a second, it's a great free way to support the show. It just go on the podcast app or iTunes or whatever and just give us a quick rating. Um, it brings us one step closer right. to beating the New York Times <laughs> it's podcast. A, we're, it's how we're going to hunt down the New York Times book podcast. Yeah, so if you feel so inclined and you like us, um, thanks for giving us a few stars out there on iTunes. I, preferably five. <laughs> yeah, if you have less stars than that, just consult with us first and we'll we'll talk you up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, before we get to um, all things Shea Serrano, we should address the one big book news item of the week, right? Um, and it's it's a little bit troubling, I think, and I think most people would agree. And that is that the TSA is now testing, um, that's airport security, um, is like testing protocol for having people remove books from their bag for inspection at airport security lines. Um, and so we say that, and that feels, to me, that feels very invasive, right? Like the idea that someone would pull a book out of mine and like, be able to kind of flip through it and decide in the context of um, airport security whether or not that's an acceptable item. I find that very strange and invasive. It's um, kind of gross. It does. But so, but I think it's interesting on why we feel that way. So, Laura, why, why does this feel kind of intrusive and gross to you? Well, so I guess in my first – my first hearing about this news, yeah. I immediately thought, well, good thing I don't pick embarrassing books when I fly. <laughs> but then really that's because I don't go for really long trips or I'm not, you know, like coming home to visit family or something. And if I was doing that and if I was bringing like my actual books, regardless of whether I'm going to be performatively reading them in the airplane. <laughs> um, but even the fact that you would performatively read. Yeah, it's – yeah, it, it feels weird and invasive because – like what I read, like 
my First Amendment rights, like what I read shouldn't have anything to do with TSA doing their job. Yeah. Like that's that's the big thing. It's like I don't want to be like at the airport at five o'clock in the morning surrounded by a whole bunch of other people that don't want to be there and yeah. a whole bunch of people that I'm already seeing their toes and then all of a sudden have them go, oh, she's reading that book. <laughs> like I don't I, – well, it's so gross. It is gross from like a personal – you know, it's you know, it's having your personal items, you know, on display, but it's also having items, you know, books that specifically say something about you. You know, like this is more than just, um, you know, your shampoo bottle. This is, you know, I think we've talked on the show a million times that you know your reading tastes. You know, they say a lot about who you are. They talk about you know what you're into and what you like. And I think that in a way, that's what some of this has to do with. I want to read. One paragraph here from this, you know, this like blog post on the ACLU site that they put this. And I think this kind of sums it up really well and gets to the heart of why I view this as kind of a dangerous thing. And I think that a lot of people, that there should be serious pushback against this. Um, So here we go. A person who is reading a book entitled Overcoming Sexual Abuse or Overcoming Sexual Dysfunction is not likely to want to plop that volume down on the conveyor belt for all to see. Even someone reading a bestseller like Fifty Shades of Grey or a mild self-help book with a title such as What Should I Do With My Life might be shy about exposing his or her reading habits. And of course, someone reading Arab or Muslim literature in today's environment has all too much cause to worry about discrimination. To at least one woman who experienced the new policy, quote, the scrutiny of my books, magazines, and food feel even more invasive than the body scanners, swabs, and pat-downs. And so to me... Um, that's like, especially that bit about like the, um, Arab or Muslim literature, um, because it, it honestly, it just presents another opportunity to profile. Yeah. You know? It really it's does. It's one more, it's one more thing that TSA agents can use to cheaply try to make a snap judgment about who you are and what you think. And, um, to me that feels, that feels pretty invasive and unfair. And apart from, um, you know, the, you know, like the 50 shades of gray point, I mean, that's a good one too. Like, you know, this is invasive. This is, in in effect, another sort of pat down. And I don't know. I mean, but I it's guess... a pat down for your brain. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't know. I I see some problems here, and I I'm you, we're gonna see stories. I think of you know people being detained because they um, or questioned because they had a book that you know people in the TSA, you know, security line thought was suspicious or didn't well, like. Well, there's already been about. an example. Um, in 2010, the ACLU um, represented a man who was handcuffed, detained and interrogated like in a very abusive manner for probably about five hours because he had Arabic language flashcards and a book about U.S. foreign policy. Well, no, so that's yeah. No, I mean, that's that's incredibly scary to me. Yeah. And and that was seven years ago. Like, consider, like, giving that the green light as, like, something to, like, allow as a part of policy. Yeah. Is for people to look at, you know, the nonfiction or even just the fiction, the dangerous yeah. fiction that's being read. Yeah. It's, I don't know, I view this as a pretty, as a pretty big problem and as something that I hope gets some pushback because, um, as we've talked about, your reading choices are, are you. And if they're using or they're a version of you and they but it's a version that isn't quickly distilled by looking at a book title. You know, like if I, you know, like this man who was detained, he picks up a book that's critical of U.S. foreign policy. That could mean literally anything. 
it probably just means he's interested in U.S. foreign policy. You know what I mean? But, Good for him. But they're allowed to interpret that or you know read that however they want. They can think, oh, this guy's you know being subversive. He's being whatever. And it it opens people up to all sorts of like I was saying, like snap judgments and interpretations and profiling that there's just no doubt in my mind are going to have harmful effects. So let's talk a minute about why TSA is feeling that this is necessary. Sure. Um, the the big thing is now that airlines are charging more for for um, checking baggage. People are stuffing more and more onto their carry on items. It's not just what I need for the flight and maybe a change of clothes just in case you my bag gets lost. You got to put more books in your backpack now. You yeah. got to put more. Yeah, you gotta you gotta put more stuff there, and you also have to be very wary of the weight if you're checking a bag and that sort of thing. So the idea here is that now that People are trying to save money. They're packing their carry-ons more, and that means that it is hard for the scanners to do what they need to do when there's a lot of um, stuff in there, particularly organic matter, particularly like, like cellulose and, and books, and paper, right? Yeah. yeah, paper. Well, that adds such a <laughs> – it adds such a strange wrinkle to our discussion about print versus electronic books, Right. Um, because apparently um, now print books are, you know, they make you, um, you know, a terror threat. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's the thing. Like it sounds like, you know, they're worried about at least they're stated to be worried about things like, um, you know, page like explosives that look like book pages. You know, they're worried that people have carved out the middle of the books and stuck things in them because they're particularly resistant to scanning. Um, and one thing that's interesting here is that. They have no right to see what's on your e-reader, right? Like so it's – I don't know. Like maybe maybe the e-book, all the more reason to, to use electronic books, right? If you're not interested in having somebody um, talk about what you're reading, you can put it on the electronic reader, yeah. which, which you were already doing on the subway to read Fifty Shades of Grey anyway. But so. if you were detained for that, I mean there, there's yeah. been a lot of stuff with TSA about what access they have to your cell phone. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering if there's not a ton of information right now about what the TSA has access to on your e-reader. It's mostly about cell phones, but um, you you know, like there there could be some sort of that they can, if they wanted to, if they were given a reason, could yeah. go into your e-reader as well. Yeah, um, I guess you know to to put a bow on this, it's just it's one more weird way that you know your reading habits are you know becoming intrinsically tied with how you exist within the state, within um, this country. Um, and I don't know, I guess, I mean, there, we have no choice but to see how it plays out and, and voice displeasure when things seem to have our, you know, seem to infringe upon our rights. But um, that's what it is. It's weird. It's definitely weird. I, um, I'm flying a lot at the end of this year. I'll definitely report back on what it was like. <laughs> Although I do have TSA PreCheck, I'm wondering if this will be one of those things. Like with TSA PreCheck, they let you leave your laptop on your bag. They let you yeah. keep your shoes on yeah. unless they're like super metally. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if they go, you can have your book privacy. So let's talk about something a little bit more fun than the end of our <laughs> privacy and reading habits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so as, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Uh, we have an interview this week, and it's one that you and I are both really, really excited about. Um, and it's with uh, it's with Shea Serrano, who is a New York Times bestselling author. He's been wildly successful um, with the Rap Yearbook, which was his latest book. Uh, the what was it called? The Bunby Coloring Book and Coloring and Activity Book. Yes, right. And then his most recent one coming up here is called Basketball and Other Things. It releases in October, and I encourage you to get it because it looks like a blast of a book. 
Um, but apart from him, you know, being a genuinely inventive writer and, you know, working for The Ringer and all these places where we've kind of, you know, at least I have been a fan of his for a very long time. Um, the reason we are so excited that he's on this show is because of the way he interacts with his fans as a book author online. He is, to me, a singular force <laughs> in book promotion. Um, and it's because he's developed this social media presence um, where he's able to engage with his fans, you know, who he refers to as the fuck out of here army, right? The FOH army. Um, and it's hard to even describe what he does. But like you and I, I feel like every week planning the show and just talking about our daily work lives, we end up talking about Shay at least once a week. Oh, yeah. One of us <laughs> will see a tweet and we will send it and go, guess what Shay's doing now? So to give you an, a little bit of an yeah. example about what he's doing, it's not just that he's saying outrageous things that go viral. No, 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 no. Um, Shay will randomly decide to, you know, to support a bookstore that is not his local bookstore, is not a bookstore he's ever been to or that he has any connection with. And will say, today, the FOH Army will do a thousand orders at this bookstore. And what's amazing is that they do it. They do it. Is that he's got this connection with his fans where he can say, hey, today we're going to pre-order this person. He's done it for, you know, kind of some of his writer friends before where he can just say, hey, everyone, I think we should all buy this book. And everyone goes and buys it. Yeah. And or we should all support this bookstore. It doesn't matter if you buy my book. Just support these people. Right. And so he's developed this absolutely amazing connection with his online audience. And I think it's because – um, he's just got this genuine, you know, enthusiasm and goodwill towards these people, towards the writers he ends up helping. I remember, you know, we, we were talking about one episode a few months ago where there was some other book that um, his publisher is Abrams, um, that Abrams published. It was about... Um, the Women's March. It was about the Women's March, yeah. And there was no author. It was just a collection a of cl- photos that Abrams did. And he looked at the bestseller list or the uh, Amazon list and saw where the Art of the Deal, Trump's book, was. It was like number 57 or something. And he just he went online and he said, all right, guys, we've got to get this other book above his. We've got to get that victory. And they did it in like a few hours, if yeah. I remember correctly. They, he just He's this one-man like book social movement. He's that, a one-man hype it, squad. It is. And yeah. it's, it's so amazing because and – and I hope you guys really enjoy hearing him talk about it um, because it's – to me, it's so genuine and it's so – um, it gets away from all the standard tropes of book promotion that we talk about. Like, um, you know, I've obviously expressed frustration with book Twitter before. And this is <laughs> no. like, this is the answer to that. You know what I mean? Like, this is someone who just is genuinely out here talking about the things he's interested in and developing a connection with people he likes. And it's paying huge dividends, both both for him, both for other people he's, uh, you know, friends with, for for anyone. And I don't know. I view him as a real, like, example of how authors should behave online and in general. And, I mean, his, you know, his personal story, um, you know, being a teacher and needing the money and just starting to write because, um, you know, they simply needed to keep the lights on, as he'll talk about. Um, I'm inspired by it. I think it's great. It and is great. it's – we were – and the fact – even the fact that he was, he was, like, willing to, you know, come on a show like ours, you know, after being someone as successful as he is, I think really speaks to the kind of engagement he's willing to have with just about anyone. And one of one of the things that really excites me, because I, I think, Eric, we can say that I am 
more fully in in book Twitter and kind of surround <laughs> myself a little bit more with yeah. people who are very yeah. insular in the publishing industry. Sure. Um, Shay is one of the few people that I follow who I mean he is in the he is in the book industry. He's there, but he is expansive in his reach. He opens it up. He he kind of takes the insular nature of publishing and and book Twitter and all of the things where like people who are readers and he just kind of he makes it accessible for everybody you know he he gets people to be excited about reading books and sharing their content and writing themselves people who normally um wouldn't necessarily be welcome people who don't necessarily belong there in an easy way well belong in quote marks because i think that's the point is that everyone (laughs) belongs and he's kind of made a point of revealing that like he talks all the time online about how He's killing the. This is the first book I've bought in a decade market. Yes, you know, like, and I think that's great. And it just feels, um, it feels to me like a very powerful and refreshing thing, especially when the rest of Twitter can be an absolute hellscape. Um, so, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, we hope that you enjoyed this interview. Here with us now, um, and we are thrilled to have him, is New York Times bestselling author Shay Serrano. How are you, Shay? What up, homies? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm sure um, you know things have been pretty busy with the book coming out soon. Yeah, it sucks. Tell <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> Why does it suck? No, I'm just playing around. It's fine. <laughs> so you're you've got a book coming out um, pretty soon, basketball and other things, which mm-hmm. you have, if we have been following your Twitter correctly, has been something you've been working on for like a year and a half. Um. Your that's that's way longer than like the articles that you write for the Ringer, right? Um, do you do you find that difference in timeline really frustrating? Do you really like it? How do we convince uh, you to write more books? Is basically what I'm asking. <laughs> um, you don't writing books is it sucks. That part <laughs> sucks. Like not the lead up to it or whatever, but doing the actual work it's it's always way more work than I'm anticipating. So. I I don't like it. As far as the timeline goes, though, it's not more frustrating or 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 more d- difficult. The only real issue I run into is trying to make sure when you write, like when I write an article, that's easy because a thing happens and then like I write about it and it goes up right. shortly thereafter. With a with a book though, I have to be careful making sure the stuff that I write isn't going to sound stupid in in a year or or two years when the book finally does come out and i don't mean so much as like predictions or anything like that yeah i mean the actual language like it's very easy to to get caught up using words or or phrases that sound fine today but you know in a few months they're going to sound very dated or or dumb that's the that's probably the main difference. Everything else sort of feels the same to me when I'm working on it. So we will not find any instances of on fleek in your book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean that's the thing, right? Like if you're making, especially in a book like this, where it seems like you're making some um, some arguments and some cases. I mean, like, have you had to go and revise any of that stuff, like based on stuff that's recently happened? Um, you know, if you're dealing with all this NBA stuff, right? You know, and I, obviously we've had you know, kind of a fun season. Did anything that just happened affect what you had originally written? Yes. Mostly it's just number stuff though. Yeah. Like yeah. In, in a B, the beginning part of the book, I, I'm talking about, for example, uh, like the highest ever PER rating. Right. Um, 
and before it was LeBron before this season, he had the highest ever at like I can't remember the exact number, twelve point something maybe. Sure. But then but then Russell Westbrook happened this season and he just destroyed he he blew up several of those numbers right. that I hadn't I yeah. fixed. But for the most part, I tried to stay away from just talking about anything that happened this season. Fair enough. So we saw um, we saw the other day on Twitter that you posted that you have your page proofs and stuff, and it got us thinking. Like in terms of the publication process um, mm-hmm. with the book, like the copy editing and the proofreading, like how has that been? Like, do you find that bit frustrating? Do you find that enjoyable? Like having to go back and look at your material again, um, as authors often you know always have to do when they go through this process like how do you find that i don't i don't like that part very much yeah. i don't like to <laughs> reread it because it feels like it's a thing you can do endlessly yeah every time i reread a chapter there's at least one or two words i want to change or move a comma or mm-hmm. add a word here so if i feel like i get trapped or, or caught up in that thing i for example the book right now is 100% done 100% yeah all yeah. done but when I reread it again next week, I'm going to ask them to change several things. <laughs> and I'm going to do that until they tell me I'm no longer allowed to do that. I'm sure your editor just loves that. <laughs> she really does. <laughs> um, so as we get as we get closer to publication, and um, just for anyone listening who's interested in buying this book, it comes out October 10th. Um, what are some of the other things? You know, you've got basketball and other things. Like, what is someone who's kind of interested in buying this book? Like, what else might be in it that isn't? You know? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of other things in there. Uh, I don't even know how to list them all. You know, the the reason that I set it up like that is because whenever I have a conversation with somebody, either in real life or if I'm writing a thing about basketball, it never ever for me travels in a perfectly straight line. There's yeah. always dips and curves and turns so i just wrote the book the exact same way sure uh, so as far as other things like it, there are parts that talk about music or mm-hmm. part a lot of parts that talk about movies or personal anecdotes and just junk like that is all it is great that's um, better other things than like <laughs> cheese yeah. or something um well, there's a whole chapter on cheese actually. is there oh my god yeah. you you yeah. know you did that just for me oh my goodness yeah. okay <laughs> so i was looking at the i was looking at the barnes and noble description and there's one debate that's listed in there that i was hoping i could get your quick take on and that is how many years you thought kobe was the number one player in the league um i'm hoping that you think the answer is zero uh yeah it's a it's a <laughs> smaller number than i had anticipated yeah. that's that's for sure. That one was a. That's probably one of the harder chapters that we had to, or I had to write. Right. Mainly because of how much research was involved. Like we had to look at, like the the beyond just the normal stats, but like player efficiency rating and the playoff player efficiency rating and the box plus minus and the playoff. Like there are a whole. There's like a whole bunch of advanced stats we had to look at every year. He's in the league for 20 years, so we had to look at it for every year. The, who are the top five players in this, and then sort of come up with a formula to average it all out. And right, yeah, it it, it wasn't. I thought it was going to be like five or six right. years that he was the number one player, but no, it was it was closer to zero. <laughs> closer that's, to zero. That's going to get uh, that's going to get the Kobe hive after you. You realize? I I, I believe so. But <laughs> if you read the chapter, you you know it, it all gets laid out there. Good. Good. So. 
Obviously, um, you are a bit notorious in book publishing circles um, because of the you know, the FOH army, right? The fuck out of here army that you sort of <laughs> cultivated. And like, we, you know, we were thinking about it a lot. And it's like, you know, there are a lot of writers online who have pretty big followings, you know, many authors who have like more Twitter followers than you. And theoretically, any author could decide to just start copying your approach to promotion, right? Like they could simply start trying to do the, you know, book parties and the, the art parties and the things that you do. But it feels pretty obvious to me that they would that they would not nearly have the sort of success that you have. And so my question to you as, you know, in our show, you know, hinges a lot on kind of dealing with this sort of stuff like author promotion and books and like how writers can be their best selves. Like what where's that connection with your readership um you know where does it come from and why do you think it's been so strong and uniquely successful i would guess that that is probably a two-part answer sure for the for the most part that's a pretty small percentage of the stuff that i'm doing whenever i'm on twitter yeah um so you know just for that reason alone it's like you, you you build up an equity of sorts. Mm-hmm. You can't just show up one day and go like, oh, today I'm going to tell people to buy the book and then hope that it happens because it's probably not going to happen because you haven't done the other stuff yet. Mm-hmm. So that that's one part of it. Uh, the other part is that I think people can tell that I don't all the way care about how many books <laughs> we sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that part is just like oh, it, it's it's whatever. Like. It's way less try hard, you know. It's yeah. that's what I've really enjoyed about it. It feels really um, authentic to follow. It feels like it's you're like it's you know, fun. J- yeah, it's you're not genuinely desperate. just trying to have a good time and not necessarily promote yourself. And I think that that's very um, refreshing in author promotion circles. Yeah, that that part it it always feels weird to me when people are. I get emails all the time from other authors, but also from like businesses or whatever, <laughs> asking how, you know, how do yeah. you do the thing yeah. that you're doing? And it's like, you kind of can't because <laughs> then everybody's going to say, oh, you're doing the thing that he's doing. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm not the first person. I didn't invent using Twitter to of promote course, yeah. things, but it just it sure ended feels up like it though. Yeah. <laughs> it just ended up working, working out that way because of all, I think it's just a reflection of all the, the other stuff that we've, that we've done all the other good things they sort of build up and then it's a almost a, a friendship of sort it's as close to being friends on the internet as you can be right and so like yeah my friend has a thing coming out i want to support that friend and i want to buy what he or she has going out and yeah. it's just the same situation because for example you're talking about these pre-orders nobody has seen any of the book yet <laughs> that's what's amazing <laughs> yeah they're, they're not buying it because it's they read a part and they thought it was really good they're just buying it because they are rooting for me mm-hmm. is, the, is the main part of it. And that happens just because we're buddies. Yeah. It sounds corny to say, but I, I think that's really the central part of it. Well, it feels like to me, I think it's because it feels like you're rooting for them, you know, and yeah. like so much of your um, so much of your presence online and like the interactions you have with your fan base, at least to me, it looks like, you know, you kind of have this underdog mentality that kind of runs through it, right? Like shooting your shot and proving people wrong and, um, you know, all these things. And I, one question I have about it is that, you know, now that you are, you know, a New York Times bestselling author and you've had the success that you've had, have you had to like change your mentality at all? Like, are you able to sell yourself on the underdog narrative to yourself still? Yeah, I think that part is sort of always going to be baked yeah. in. 
because when I'm thinking about it, I still kind of feel like a pretend author or a pretend writer because I didn't go to school for it. I didn't, you know, I didn't go a traditional route. I just sort of fell backwards into it. So it always feels like maybe I don't belong here or maybe this stuff is like, I don't know. It just feels like I didn't, wasn't bred for, for, for winning in this game. Yeah. So that part is always in there for me. And it feels a bunch like when we, when the rap yearbook took off before any of this happened, there, there was very much an underdog mentality. And then after, afterward, after it took off and then all of a sudden different publishers know who I am or we're on the bestseller list or mm-hmm. the book's getting, it's doing whatever's doing. Then it started to feel like, okay, well now I'm in this spot. How can I help some other people get up here? And so that, that underdog thing is still there because now we're trying to, I want to open that door just a little bit to let maybe one or two other people can sneak in behind me. You sure. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of what's going on. So, um, for those listening who don't follow Shay yet, you totally should. Um, he's been chasing, uh, the <laughs> NBA all time scoring list with his pre-orders. And I real, I, uh, saw you the other day, you just passed, uh, passed Derek Fisher. Congratulations on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, is Abrams like sitting in a conference room right now, like looking at the all-time NBA scoring list, like trying to figure out how many of these books to print, or like how do they react to all these things as it happens? Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> actually, like we when the rap yearbook came out, they didn't print up near enough copies. Yeah, they were all sold out before they even were out. Basically, oh, wow. yeah. So we were like in the second printing of the book before right. the book had come out. Which is crazy. So yeah, this time they just printed up a whole lot more. I don't know exactly how many, but they said, "Don't worry, we're not gonna we're run, not gonna out, run out, out this time." <laughs> so that's one of the things they talk about. And that mean another thing they talk about is we're not um, not supposed to like say how many pre-orders we have for some reason. Why? They, Interesting. They, yeah, like if you notice, if you look at any other authors, like very few of them will say numbers as far as what they've sold or what is you know, uh, what they have for pre-orders. I don't understand why that is. I don't understand why publishing works like that, but it, it took me a long time to convince Abrams to let me talk about the, you know, where we are in the numbers before they're like, you're not allowed. You can say how many we printed. You can't say how many we sold, whatever. The only, the only reason I can think of is why that is, is because pre-orders factor into the sales number for the first week of the, of the book. And so like a lot of pre-orders is typically how books get onto the New York times bestseller list. Um, and I'm guessing that they might want to keep that narrative a little bit secret so that it seems like you're a little bit more of an instant overnight success rather than like Shay Serrano has been like pounding the street and like getting pre-orders for the last eight months, maybe. Right, right. Um, but it's, it's, it is a little weird that when, when you're like book publishing is all about keeping the momentum. And Mm -hmm. so kind of hiding a lot of that is a very strange thing. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think maybe they're just worried about you might maybe you could figure out what other books have sold and then you start getting into that whole. Yeah. What did this person get paid versus what did that person get paid? Right. And blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But but I prefer to get it out there. And I think another part of it is what happens if you say you want to get to a certain number and you don't get there? And like, are you embarrassed at that? Right. At that <laughs> point. And that part never bothered me. Like, I hope. <laughs> 
I hope we set a number and then we don't get there because then, fuck, I mean, at least we tried. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And somebody gets to, you get to push to that one for the next book. Yeah. It's yeah. like, let's see. It just, for me, it works better. Let's tell, every, let's have everybody know what's going on because then everybody gets, feels a little more invested in it. Because now what happens is I have people messaging me like they were my editor or <laughs> publisher asking like, oh, what's the book at this week? How far <laughs> how far have we gotten? And it's just, it, it makes for a better experience on, on my end anyway. Yeah. Good. Cool. So speaking of getting paid, um, we in publishing talk all the time about exposure and platform and experience as reasons why writers don't really get paid for their work. Either it's, you know, no advance or, you know, people writing journal articles and they they kind of are just doing it for the exposure. Um, you you started writing as a journalist because you needed to augment your income um, when you were a teacher, right? It, so you're obviously very vocally against this. You've, you've talked about how writers and, and creators in general need to get paid. Um, why do you feel that that's so essential for art artists and writers to get more than just exposure? <laughs> because you can't live on exposure. Yeah. yeah. Does it, the, most people aren't just writing because they just feel like they need to write and that's all the fulfillment that they need. Like pay that person so they can do the thing that they want to do. Um, so, yeah, that I mean, as you mentioned, that was the whole reason I started writing was we my wife was not working at the time because she was having some pregnancy stuff going on so we needed that money and it was like that was the only reason I was writing yeah. I, I would have been perfectly fine if they would have been paying me and never publishing any of my articles that would have been 100 percent okay with me like I don't need the exposure I need to pay the light bill <laughs> so yeah I'm sure there are people out there who live a life where they're able to write for free and they don't have to worry about getting paid. But most of the people I know aren't that fortunate. Yeah. So they're trying to pay a bill. Let's make sure that they're able to do that. Makes sense to me. Um, so you have a forward in your book by, by Reggie Miller, if I saw that correctly, right? Yes, sir. Um, does he write like he calls games? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I love Reggie Miller. Yeah. I think he's a fantastic game uh, com uh, commentator. Let me say that. Okay. Uh, but no, he he was great to to work on the forward. Usually, when you do a forward with somebody like that, with a famous person, the way it works is you just interview them. You, uh, him, and I spoke on the phone one day for for about an hour. Mm -hmm. I just recorded everything, very similar to what we're doing now, and then I typed typed it all up. I wrote down the questions and answers and then I sent it to him and his, his handler and they go over everything and they say, okay, we'll change this or change that. And then they sign off on it. And so there you go. So the forward was very much just him having a conversation. Cool. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm really excited to read that actually. <laughs> yeah. um, so Shay, last question for you. And it's one that we ask all of our guests on the show. If you could change one thing about publishing the industry in general, what would it be? Um, I would do the thing that we were talking about. I think we should have this website where it lists how many books everybody sold so we can all see and also how much each person got paid to write that book mm. so we can all have that yeah. point of reference. 
I feel like the rap yearbook sold, I don't know, somewhere around 115,000, 120,000 copies mm -hmm. right now. So whenever I do this next book deal, I want to say, be able to point to a list and say, well, look what this book did versus yeah. this other person's. And now I need a check that looks like that person's <laughs> check. You know what I'm saying? That's great. Yeah, no, I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah, is there is like half of that that exists. There is this um, there's this company that tracks book sales in general, and you can like look up how many you sold, yeah. so that you can then like up your personal advance. But that transparency yeah, is missing a lot. It's pretty yeah. It's it's pretty um, internal. But also, that you internal about book scan, right? Yeah, yeah, and book scan costs like hundreds of yeah. thousands of dollars. <laughs> To get, to, you know, to for like a big company. Like Abrams spends so much money having books scan. <laughs> and yeah. it's not accessible. Well, and what's crazy is, is, is they, beyond it just not being accessible to everybody else, they they don't catch all of the sales is the right. thing. Right, yeah. Like the, they'll, I can look on BookScan and it'll show how many copies of one of my books is sold. But then every six months they send me a, like a royalty statement. Mm-hmm. And that, with that one, they're able to say almost all of the copies of the book that have sold because they have to track that part. But mm -hmm. they all don't report to BookScan, so that number is usually different. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah, it, I don't understand why they do it that way. But yeah, I, I wish that it was the the opposite direction. Yeah, makes well, sense. That's that's a good thing to change. Yeah, that, yeah, that would that would make answer. doing our jobs a lot easier, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, Shay, thanks so much for coming on. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Um, best of luck with um, basketball and other things, and we will certainly be uh, first in line to, to get our copy when it comes out. We've already pre-ordered it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Bye. Wow. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. I'm really um, – again, as someone who loves his stuff and has been reading him for a long time, um, I was really – Really thrilled that he came on. So thanks so much, Jay. Uh, we appreciate it. We end every episode of Print Run with a writing tip uh, for anyone out there who's trying to work on their own stuff. And obviously, I think I think this week's kind of wrote itself, huh? Actually, Shay wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is um, this week our write tip is to shoot your shot. Um, you know, pitch the person you don't think you're worthy of pitching. Ask for the thing you don't necessarily think you're worth because the truth is that the writing industry and the book industry is never going to tell you you're worth more than you think you it's are. It's never also going to tell you that it's your turn. Exactly. Like some of this stuff you got to just take for yourself. You know, you've got to be bold. You've got to show them that you are who you are as opposed to waiting for it to happen because it simply won't because there's it, they're, not <laughs> they're not trying to help you. But they will help you if you show them that, you, um, that you're up for it and that you're the kind of dynamic person that deserves that kind of success. Do the thing you're afraid of doing, you know, query the president of the literary agency rather than the junior agent if they're going to be a better fit for you, you know, like write for somebody and ask for them to pay you, you know, yeah. focus on, you know, writing that gigantic book that everybody says that can't sell right now, because guess what? It's going to sell at some point. Yep. Just do it and just go for it. And um, maybe someday you will end up like Shay. <laughs> that's the goal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I think so. That's the takeaway, right? It's like just be your own best champion, you know, like be the person who's the most bullish about your own career and your own writing life, because that is the only way 
um, that it's going to end up with in the way that you want it to. And people are going to root for you that way. So as a reminder, July special episodes are coming up. The Query Show goes live July 13th. The Writing by Reading episode goes live July 20th. Definitely stay tuned on social media for announcement of what that piece is going to be. And First Pages episode goes live July 27th. Remember to send us your queries, First Pages, suggestions, um, feedback, questions, whatever you have at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye. Bye.